It's nice to be back. I've been gone a while. For some of you that would know that, the rest of you could care less. Last time you saw me, I had this big, nice white hair. Do you remember that? You know why I did that? As my five-year-old granddaughter said, we need to pray that Papa gets his hair back. So Bev wouldn't let me shave it until we went and uh, saw them at Thanksgiving time. And then I said, now, Aaliyah, you need to pray for this part because God gave me all of this, but now I need, you know. What do you want for Christmas? It's that time of year, isn't it? Um, when we went, uh, when we left here a few weeks ago, we drove over to Durango, Colorado, met all the kids and grandkids, and we did the Polar Express that little small gauge train that goes up from Durango to Silverton. And we did the Polar Express thing. We all wore our pajamas and, and got hot chocolate and a bell from Santa Claus. And we did the whole Polar Express story on the train. Uh, of course, I'd never read Polar Express. I had no idea what we were doing, but we had a good time. At the end, then, of course, the two little granddaughters, three and five, got to sit on Santa Claus's lap and tell him exactly what they wanted for Christmas. Of course, the parents were listening a lot. It's that time of year, isn't it? What do you want for Christmas? I told Bev that I'd be pretty happy if she'd just get me one of those new Tesla pickups. <laughs> you know, um, I, could, I could handle that. Or if we won the lottery between now and Christmas, then I could get my own Tesla pickup. Um, but what I settled on was Alexa for her. Because every time she wants to listen to music, Bob, how do I get this Bluetooth thing working on this phone business here? So now she can just tell Alexa I want to hear, and Alexa's going to give it to her. And I'm actually, I'm gifting myself for the. <laughs> but this morning, I am here to not just ask you what you want for Christmas. I'm really here to risk reminding you what you really want. I'm risking it because as a human being, you and I will do almost anything to avoid answering the question, what do we really want for Christmas? Because what we all want is someone, just one person. We would never risk thinking we want everybody because we all survived junior high and high school, didn't we? We would never dream that everyone would love us, but just one person, if we could find just one person who would know everything about us in every tiny, minute little detail and still love us, wouldn't that be awesome and amazing? I risk reminding you of this because it is such a painful want. And we spend most of our time avoiding this thing and we settle for Tesla's and lotteries, and Alexis. Let me just go through a few verses. John 3, 16, For God so loved you. For God so loved us. For God so loved the world, all of us, that he gave us, he gave you, he gave me, his son, his only son. Matthew 1, 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, he's not saving you from your 
I mean, he can't, he's, obviously he saves all of this, but his focus is not whether you overate last night or you're going to overeat today or whether you got angry with the dog and you kicked him out the house or whatever. That's, those, those are acts of a sinner. We are born sinners before we sin. It doesn't work the other way around. Legalistically, it does. If you grew up in a sort of a legalistic church, well, you sin, so now you're a sinner. No, you were born a sinner, and as a result, you sin. But what is the sin? The sin is not necessarily you getting angry or whatever. The sin is that you are born knowing what fear is and what exposure is. You know what it's like to be vulnerable. You know what it's like to be hurt when somebody actually discovers who you are and rejects you or says something bad about you. Sin, you see, if you remember our first story, sin is that which caused us to come out of this glorious, comfortable, loving space of light and and color and life, and we enter into the woods of fear and nakedness. Jesus came to this earth to save us from our fear and our nakedness. Matthew 1.23, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God coming down here is the source of why we no longer have to live with fear and nakedness, exposure, vulnerability, all the things that you and I are doing, everything we can do every day of our lives to avoid. We wear clothes We have the maskings of success. We have a house to go to. We know where our next meal's coming from. What do you mean we're exposed? What do you mean we're vulnerable? What do you mean all this stuff? 2 Corinthians 9, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given to you. Grace is much more than unmerited favor, if that's the definition that you've grown up on. Grace is this overwhelming, outstanding, amazing, unbelievable, inexplainable love that God has for you that covers everything about you. This surpassing grace of God has given you thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. How's that for being under your Christmas tree? Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you really want to live forever if you still had to live with your vulnerability and your fear? Wouldn't that be a living hell to live forever with the vulnerability and all the junk that is coursing through your mind and your heart right now? Emmanuel came to take that from you so that you can live eternally without any of that just hitting you. We are sinners, but that is not our identity. We got to, if, you, if you've grown up in a church that, that says, well, your true condition is, is that you're fallen. Your true condition is this, this uh, original sin that we all have to deal with. Can I say, long before original sin was original glory. 
We were made to ride, to have dominion. We were made to be desired. We were made to be, be fulfilled and complete and, and amazing creatures. In fact, when God spoke to himself at the Tower of Babel, if you go back to Genesis 11, you can read this. He says, these people, we made them so that they can do anything their minds imagined to do. They made, God made us glorious to expand beyond. In fact, Hebrews 2 tells us he made us to be able to expand beyond the angels. An amazing capacity. Our identity is that we are well-beloved. You do not define yourself if you're, a, if you're a Christ follower as a sinner. You define yourself as one who is well-beloved. When Emmanuel comes to us, when God finally comes to us, we receive what our hearts have always truly wanted. We were made to want God. We were made to be complete and cemented to him. That first story, when we go back to it, God spoke everything into existence. Let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. But when it came to your creation and mine, God did not speak. He got down and he got his fingernails dirty and he crafted you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. He looked into you, he breathed into you, he bent over and the first thing you saw was his beaming, excited face when you woke up and there was God smiling at you. And the last picture that we have of God in Revelation is God doing an Irish jig over the excitement that he has that all of his redeemed are back. The last picture we have of God is his smiling, dancing God. The first picture we have is him smiling at us. We long for that smile. That's what we want. Our quest since sin is to find that smile upon God's face. Once again, to make it the centerpiece of our existence. But our flesh, have you ever heard about our flesh? Anybody want to know about our flesh? Sort of a crappy thing, but it's what we are. But our flesh, what havoc sin has reaped upon us by when we're born, our flesh is like muscle man down here and our spirit is like nothing. And we, as we grow in Christ and as we know about our belovedness, our spirit strength increases and our flesh decreases. And that's the journey that you and I happen to be on right now. But our flesh, our, our flesh is convinced that we want something different. Our flesh is convinced that, man, if we just could, could, could have this or do that or be that or whatever, we would be just awesome and amazing. The temptation of the superficial soul, that kind of a soul that is sold out to thinking that you can get it through fame and fortune. The temptation of the superficial soul is to pretend that we're sinners and to pretend that this safe God has forgiven us. And that's where it seems that most of us stay. Oh God, please forgive me. I ate three desserts yesterday. Please just forgive me for that. And then the next time we go out to eat, we go out and, well, we'll eat two and a half. Well, if I'm a sinner, that's what sinners do. We have three desserts when we're only supposed to have one or maybe none. So we pretend that we are sinners and because we're not really serious about it. If we were, we would understand the depth of who we are as sinners, our nakedness, our fear, our depravity. 
we would understand that inside of every one of us is the capacity to make Hitler look like a choir boy. Did you know that? But we mask that by pretending that we're sinners and pretending that we're forgiven and we never get down to where we really belong to be and where we long to be. That way, and this is why we do it, we can still play those little games. Our intimacy. See, our spirit thinks that intimacy is worship. And that's what we do. And this morning when we're, when we're here worshiping, we're just feeling oneness, aren't we? We're feeling connected to that, to that divine God with us, Emmanuel experience. But our flesh thinks that intimacy is sex. Security, our spirit thinks that presence, if we just are in the presence of God, we will feel secure. Our spirit understands that. But our flesh thinks that security is money. We can manage whatever happens if I just have enough money I can avoid. And it sort of looks that way. You look around all these rich guys, but they don't end up real well either, I don't think. Rest, our spirit thinks that rest is trust. But our flesh thinks that rest is a nice vacation somewhere where we can sleep in. Meaning, our spirits think that meaning is found in purpose and service. But our flesh thinks that meaning is in what we can acquire, what we can have and hold. So, for most of us, the sins that we acknowledge, they don't just tear into us. They don't break us down. They don't they don't immobilize us because we're just dealing with the periphery stuff. And so we remain sort of dishonest with God and with each other. The spiritual life becomes a carnival sideshow of pseudo-repentance and pseudo-peace. And we talk about things, and though we don't really mean them, but yeah, we've had a little bit of exposure to it, but they really haven't become rock-solidly embedded in each one of us. That's why we just sort of hang out there and say, yeah, I think it's true. I hope it's true. Someday it might be true. Maybe before I die it'll all make sense, but I'm just going to hang around and, and we leave it at that. But when the scourge of your life rips you in two, and when you finally at that point, and every one of us is going to come to this more than once probably, when you finally look at yourself and realize there is a darkness in me that I did not know was so bad, it's so dark, so destructive, so painful, so fearful, so oh, whatever, whatever words you want to put to that. Our spirit then becomes that source that longs for some relief from this, some release from that. Am I getting way too deep here for you guys? Our spirit says, we got to do something. And so we have a choice at that moment. Do we remain in our shame? Do we choose to just simply acknowledge that we are just shame? Or can we internalize Julian, St. Julian's prayer and we choose to trust mercy, God with us? St. Julian's prayer goes like this. Our courteous Lord does not want his servants to despair because they fall often and grievously, for our falling does not hinder him loving us. Isn't that cool? 
our falling does not hinder him in loving us. When John in John 1 describes the coming of Jesus, he put it in terms of two words, truth and grace. I like to combine those, truthful grace and graceful truth. You know, you've heard a bunch of preachers, I'm sure, in your lifetime that have given you truth, but it wasn't graceful truth. It was destructive truth. It scared the whoopee out of you, and you wanted to give up in despair, right? Jesus came to give us graceful truth and truthful grace. To put those two together so that you, when he comes, he gives us the deepest desire of our hearts. We want to be loved and valued and appreciated. Someone to know us in spite of who we are and still love us. He is ours to receive. All we have to do is finally receive what our hearts have always wanted. And we believe it for the first time. We take it in. Yes, someone does love me for just who I am. And when we do that... Instantly, we become little children, sitting on Santa's knee saying, this is what I want. Jesus says, unless we become as little children, we're not going to enter into the kingdom. What's that all about? Well, back before we moved here in 2011, we were in Portland. We worked with inner city kids for 20-some years, and, and, and it's a whole different world when you're in the worst section of Portland, Oregon, and you have 150 of these kids that haven't been farther from their house in about 10 minutes. I mean, one time we took a bunch of them, we started a little basketball team, and we went and played other little basketball teams, and, and we were driving downtown, which is only 15 minutes from there by car, and we go by this big, beautiful glass building, and this one little kid says, I've always wanted to see that building. I can just see a little bit of it from my window. And 15 minutes was like a, a lifetime of journey. They'd never been downtown Portland in their hall. We took them up to Mount Hood, and they, and, they, and they got in the snow, and they threw snowballs. They'd never done that before. So one year we brought in Santa Claus and we brought, you know, we had presents for him or whatever. We had a party. We didn't have presents at that point. We did later on at Christmas. But Santa Claus came in and the wide-eyed, excitement-trembling little kid sitting on his lap for the first time telling Santa Claus what they wanted for Christmas. That's what it's sort of like for us. Now imagine yourself a little child, okay? But you're beset with adult stuff, okay? I don't know what your life has been like this year. Maybe this has been the best financial year you've ever had, and Christmas is going to be really great for you, and you get a lot of presents under the tree, whatever. Um, maybe your family is really tight, and you love each other, and it's just going great for you. Some others may not be so well. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you're looking for a job in between jobs. You got out of college, and and uh, university and haven't gotten a job, whatever it is, however it is. Imagine what your life is right now, and then tonight you go out and you step out your front door of wherever you're living, and you look up and suddenly the sky rips open, it's bright, brilliant light, and angels are coming down and say, hey, guess what? Jesus is coming. Emmanuel, God is with you right now. All of your, all of your debts are forgiven. Your, whatever's holding you back, whatever fears are driving you, whatever, whatever is, is, is breaking your heart right now, he is releasing you out of that prison. You are free. He's brought you the year of Jubilee. It is time. 
it is time for you to celebrate Christmas every day of your life in your spirit, not just in your, not just in your flesh. Either you walk into that mystery or you don't. Either you stay stuck or you become as a little child and you start trembling all over and say, you mean it can be true for me? You mean Emmanuel came for me? He came to open my prison doors, to release me from everything that holds me back, the limitations of my imagination, the fear, the brokenness, the darkness, the, all the gobbledygook. If you enter into that mystery, and this is the hard part for us, because we have been striving to be God our whole lives, because either he's God or we're God, because somebody's got to manage our lives. But the minute that you enter into the mystery and become a little child, you become very small. We can no longer come to God with our sophisticated professionalism or our superficial, obnoxious whatever we come to, all the games that we play around God. And it's as though we, we can not even be surprised if God came in this morning, right during when Travis was leading us in worship, and he just blew our worship to smithereens. He said, Bob, sit down. You know, I got other things to say. We wouldn't be surprised by that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be shocked by any of this. When night skies light up or when big fish swallow small prophets or when one boy's lunch can feed 5,000 men or when a dead man rises to life three days after he's died, nothing surprises us anymore. We are sitting on Santa Claus's lap and our hearts are just free to want. As John said in Revelation, he said, well, I was, I was sitting on this island just recovering from all my burns, and God came to me, and let me tell you what I saw. And then he goes on, talks about red dragons and women, pregnant women, and wars, and you name it. I mean, you wonder what he ate for supper that night. Or Paul says, I was on my way to Damascus and God just blew me off my horse and I landed on my knees and I, and, and I was paralyzed and I was blind. I didn't know what I'd done. I'd, nothing's ever been the same since. Or Peter says, man, I just cussed my head off there at the, at the trial. I felt really bad. And when Jesus showed up at the lake, he didn't give me hell. He put his arm around me and he says, Peter, do you love me? I'm going to restore you. Do you, do you just love me? Can you hang with me? And he says, I, I've never been the same since that day. Emmanuel, God with us. Unconditional, unreserved love for just you. No matter what he knows about you, no matter what choices you make, and no matter what choices you're going to make tomorrow, God with us. Talk to Mary, talk to Lazarus, talk to Simon the Pharisee, the Roman soldier at the cross, the ten lepers on the side of the road. Talk to one another here in this room. God with us. 
What a difference. We've entered into the mystery. Things are now different. We do not define ourselves or see ourselves or each other the way we once did. Our flesh dies in the face of the onslaught of God's great love. As we enter into his presence, I want you to see this up here. As we enter into his presence, I like this because I wrote this, so it's really good. So that's why it's... As we enter into his presence, our thoughts become devout, not because you make them devout. Our understanding mellows, our words slacken, our judgment becomes reserved, and our objectivity gains reverence. In other words, it becomes transformative without you doing a darn thing, if you will mind the expression. We receive what we've always wanted. Someone who loves us just as we are. Nothing in us offends him or puts him off. When that finally sinks into us, then we are able to give him what he wants. And then we make Christmas complete. It's not just what we get at Christmas time, but it's also what we can give him. Wise men who took two years to travel to the birthplace of Jesus to give him symbols of their love. The prodigal son story where the father wraps his arms around this pig, pig um, poop encrusted son of his puts his robe around him, hauls him back to the house, which no Jewish father would ever show that level of emotion. I mean, this was such a radical picture of God for Jesus to even talk about a Jewish father showing that. I mean, this Jewish father had all the right in the world to, to write him off, never see him again, because what did the son ask him to do? Dad, I want you to drop dead so I can get my money. And dad says, how about if I give you the money without me dropping dead? Oh, that'd be fine. In other words, the son had already written the father off. But the father goes out there, gives him a hug, kisses him on the cheek, puts his robe around him. On the way back, he gives him the password to his bank account, which in those days was the signet ring, where he could go and had all the assets of the father. The father didn't reserve one thing. He didn't say, now, son, if you can show up at work now for the next three years and really do a good job, I'll let you in on you know, part of the assets so that you can go and buy a new car every once in a while. The father gave him access to everything that the father owned on the way back to the house without the son ever saying, I'm sorry. Did you ever notice that the thief on the cross that was saved never said he's sorry either? Are you kidding? The father would love his son that much? Do you think that son would ever leave home again? His heart belonged to the father. He's never going to leave the father. The father now gets what he's always wanted, a son who loves him. The wayward wife, the wife to her wayward husband she's, who is strayed, she says to him, Honey, I love you. Nothing you're ever going to do or say is ever going to stop me from loving you. I forgive you. Do you think he's ever going to leave her side with that attitude of forgiveness and grace when he has broken all of his marriage vows to her? When we recognize our belovedness 
by God, when we discover that he is safe and approachable, when we comprehend that he is near to us because he cannot stand being far from us, we enter into the mystery and we return our gifts to him. Our heart, our devotion, our service. How about our tithe? Just want to throw that in for Jackie. Our mission. Everything we have, we return because it's just an automatic thing. We'll never leave him. We'll never even contemplate leaving him. We will bask in the glory of our belovedness. It will be who we are defined by from that moment forward. God with us, Emmanuel, he has come down to save us from our fear, from our lostness, from our vulnerability. And that's because Christmas, more than Valentine's ever thought of being, is about our heart. And if anything that Spirit has said about this resonates with you, I'd like to invite you to conclude this morning with this litany together of love. And um, if you haven't been here last week, you get the dark part, I get to read the light printed part. But let's just share together and sort of conclude this Christmas gift back to God together. You ready? God, in the waiting and the tension, you are teaching us the characteristics of true love, patience, gentleness, kindness, for years, for generations we said, when what we really thought was, we thought of you as moody and prickly. We know better now. We like to imagine the night love became incarnate. Still. Perfect condition for love's emergence. It's in quiet that love has its purest voice. And indeed, love smiled upon us that day. A tiny voice bawling out love's insistence. A tiny heart beating out love's cadence. Shh, we can still hear it. I love you, I love, I am love. Amen. With that prayer, you are dismissed. God bless you. Merry Christmas.